0: New Year, and we are free. Praise the Lord. It's a new year. We begin a new series entitled Judges God's Power to Deliver. I want to begin by distinguishing the book of Judges from the judges you see on television Judge Judy, <laughs> Judge Joe Brown, and Judge Pirro. Um, some of the uh, cases that are presented on television, like, You owe me $200 because you stole my boyfriend and I had to go to counseling, and my heart's broken. So I feel entitled to the money. Uh, It's not what's covered in the book of Judges. (laughs) Judges has much more to do about God's delivering power. It's people following the slavery. So I'm going to encourage you over these next few weeks to be reading the book of Judges as we talk about freedom and the freedom God wants to bring into our lives. I believe that our God delivers. I believe our God delivers us from any bondage. I believe that God can deliver us from debt. This fall, 32 families from our church, including Debbie and I, went to the Financial Peace University, Dave Ramsey's teachings on total money makeover. And we learned that the typical American family, like us, has an annual income of about $40,000, would normally have about $850 house payment, mortgage, or rent, $350 car payment, with an additional $180 car payment on a second car, and then a $165 student loan, and the average credit card debt now in America is about $12,000. But here are some of the testimonies that are rolling out of Dave Ramsey's class. This is why I want you to take it. If you haven't taken it, it again in, in March. This is Alan, 40, 48, and Lonnie, 47. Before getting involved with Dave's plan, I was so stressed out by our financial situation." How many here would say, I am so stressed out by our financial situation debt? This guy, Lonnie, ended up in the hospital. My wife and I were making good money, but we had nothing to show for it. How many could say that? We're making good money, but have nothing to show for it. We were under constant pressure. We found ourselves $95,000 in debt. But we followed the steps outlined in the Total Money Makeover paid off all our consumer debt. Now, the idea here is <clears throat> there gets to be a debt snowball, appropriate for the wintertime, the debt snowball. So you line up your debts from the least to the greatest, and you begin to pick them off from the least to the greatest until you get out of debt, and then you are free. For the principle is that the, the borrower, borrower is always a slave to the lender. And we're talking here about freedom. Well, this guy Lonnie, in 18 months, was able to get himself out of debt, and began establishing a six-month emergency plan and then establish a plan for the next seven years where they pay off the house. His testimony was, we saw, we saw light, as it were, in the midst of a very dark tunnel. You see, God himself wants to give us freedom. We as a church began on a journey last year to resolve our church's debt of $2.45 million. And I'm very pleased to announce to you on this day the debt has moved to $1.6 million. That's $850,000 given last year to resolve the debt. God is moving in the life of our church, but we also want Him moving in the lives of our families. So here's another testimony. This is Mark 40 and Kelly 39. We started a marriage without any debt. We lived on a single income. The uh, cars were paid for. We even had a savings account. However... We moved into a much bigger house than we could afford, and I got a promotion creating the illusion that we could substantially increase our standard of living. We financed two new cars to replace the old ones. We started buying everything on credit with the credit cards that came to us in the mail, and then we got a home equity loan. But over the course of the next 20 months, Mark and Kelly were able to resolve their consumer credit. Now I'm going to make it personal to us. Debbie and I have four children. Two of my children now are married. I met one of my married daughters, my married daughter at the door. Debbie's, Debbie, my wife's love language is giving of gifts. So there's always presents around the tree. In the past, we would be paying on our Christmas presents in February and March. But this year, all of the Christmas presents we gave away were paid for in December we can actually give a gift now, not regretting it and figuring out how we're going to pay it off later. Also, that Christmas tree we typically bought, you know, a $69, $79 Christmas tree from Meadows Farms. We now have a Christmas tree that lives most of the time in the basement of our house, and we bring it out for Christmas. We (laughs) We don't owe anything currently on the house. We don't have any residual WRI student loans. We're trying to help our kids minimize their own student loans. We don't have any car payments. Our cars aren't much, but they're paid for. (laughs) We have a little bit of consumer debt we're trying to resolve. We have a plan to get out of that debt, and we have a budget. So we're going to be encouraging you as couples, as families, to get yourself on a budget. A budget is telling your money where to go rather than wondering where it went. (laughs) You best be knowing where your money is going, okay? You got to know where your money is going. That involves talking to one another. So we're not only talking about getting out of debt, we're talking about, as families, talking about our money, right? What's coming in? What's going out? You have to work together on a budget. It will never work as long as it is a unilateral effort by one partner or the family to make it happen. You see, a budget is putting it down on paper. And the paper is the boss of the money. And you are the boss of the paper. And you have to stick to your budget. Okay? Every family has a budget buster. I happen to be the budget buster in my family. So if something comes up in your family, okay, an emergency, the refrigerator dies, the transmission goes out, you need to call for an emergency family meeting to put that now into the budget. Right? So something has to go out of the budget to make room for that emergency. I really believe God's going to bring a lot of freedom to our church this year. I believe that our God has the power to deliver. He has the power to deliver your family out of debt to take you into freedom. I believe our God gives us hope. And now we're going to turn to Heather Roderick and hear her story about freedom. It's a story about Lyme's disease. It's a story about the human struggle with pain. It's a story about surrender. It's a story about God's redemption. When I first heard this, I thought, you got to hear it. Heather's story
1: of redemption. Good morning. Yeah, oh, that's nice. Um, This is pretty personal for me, and it's um, been the past eight years of my life, so um, I tend to do better when I write a letter. Um, I tend to think better, so um, this is, um, I wrote this in a letter form, so here we go. Dear friends... I write this letter to worship my Lord by telling you the short and very condensed version of how he's been working in my life. But to get there, I must go back a little and give you some background. Eight years ago, at age 19, I was a crazy loud, energetic, on fire college student, ending my sophomore year. I was attending Shepherd University in West Virginia, pursuing a graphic design major, and skipping class to do anything athletic. I loved being active. I was a marathon runner, a cyclist, a rock climber, kickboxer, a swimmer, and a triathlete. When people saw me, I was usually running. I was also very active in the on-campus ministries common ground and the Christian student union. And on the weekends, I attended Grace Community Church and on Sunday evenings drove to Mount Airy for a college Bible study. I was also a leader for young life at Walkersville High School. Life was good and God was good. In late 2003, I was diagnosed with Lyme disease and two co-affections, each claiming their own consequences. Lyme disease takes many forms and exists on many different levels. When caught early, the effects aren't severe and can be easily resolved. If diagnosed late, the consequences can be devastating. In my case, it was diagnosed late, and I was in an advanced stage, which affected my neurological and muscular systems. This then took me from anything athletic. It was extremely frustrating going from running 20 plus miles to barely being able to get up the stairs. It felt like I was a 19-year-old in an 84-year-old's body. As the disease was affecting my body, the aggressive treatments and medications affected my mind. As my health fluctuated, I attended classes only to have to withdraw over and over. So I would begin a class, make it halfway through, and then have to withdraw only to take the same class again next semester based on my health at that time. School, which was supposed to take me four years, took eight. I'm not sure which was worse, the disease itself or the countless medications and treatments. Physically, I felt like I was dying, but emotionally, I felt strong. With my God, I could pull through. At least that's what I thought. And little did I realize I was leaning on my own strength, which eventually would run out. At that time, I was trusting in God the best I knew how, and it was this life of self-reliance he would break me of. And as the years passed by and my condition only worsened, God started to look different. He started to feel distant. I was tired and tired of being tired. I was grieving myself in the life that I had. The casualties of this disease began to mount. My college graduation, the Iron Man, countless marathons, weddings, birthdays, friendships, my self-esteem, and the list could go on. I was broken, and the rabbit hole only seemed to go deeper, My heart and my heart seemed to harden. God seemed to not care, and slowly I began to isolate myself. I didn't see the point in praying anymore. He didn't seem to be listening. Church was difficult. I saw people lifting their hands in praise, singing about a God of love. Why didn't he love me? How could he allow this suffering to endure? What had I I done to have this happen? Or at least, why couldn't I feel him? Instead, I felt numb. I looked at my earthly father as a man who I could see in pain over my situation, and a man who I knew was trying to do anything and everything to make me better, a man who could hold me when I cried. Looking back, I feel ashamed that I could forget about a God who gave his son for my sins, but at that time, my Heavenly Father seemed to have turned his back. Jesus seemed approachable, he suffered, and I felt I could relate to him, but God had abandoned us both. During the years I had clung to my, during the first years, I had clung to my scripture and spent many nights on my knees in tears and prayers. I had hopes my God would heal me and take this pain away, and when he failed, I thought he was saying no or not hearing me. I wanted so badly to love God and to feel his presence again, but I was so hurt and confused. My identity, in which I was as his beloved, began to fade as I pulled away. And as I mentioned earlier, my self-esteem was crushed. Who was I now? I was far from the pretty, outgoing, strong girl I remembered. Who would want me now? At this point, I had lost almost all my hair due to the medications, and my struggling liver left my skin a pale yellow tint and my my body rejected most food, and my weight dropped to 86 pounds. I would joke to my mom that I looked like Gollum. I took showers in the dark and avoided mirrors. I felt sick on the inside and out. I felt like a waste. Why would God take me from the ministries I was doing like Young Life, and how could this be better? How could I possibly reach people now? And I saw myself as worthless. In my darkest moments, I would pray the Lord would just end this and take me home or that I wouldn't wake up. Over the past seven years, I have gone through the hands of 28 doctors, participated in several medical studies and clinical trials, had several hospital stays and visits, I have attended two extended stay treatment centers, experienced long hours of flying to Kansas, and long hours of driving to Pennsylvania and Virginia, and endured limitless amounts and varieties of tests, and again the list goes on. I have tried so many different protocols, I can't even count them. And the hardest of of all these was the hopes and promises of restoration and the disappointment of failure or slow improvement. I've been stuck with too many needles, sat through too many IVs, spent long hours in oxygen chambers, and listened to too many doctors tell me this will do it guaranteed. And all for the hope of getting back to who I was, not realizing this was pointless. I was never meant to be who who I used to be, and I burned out trying to do such an impossible task. God had something else in mind. He was making me stronger through weakness. To stay and talk in detail about all those years would take forever, and it's really not necessary. Just this past year, things have started to slowly turn around. Currently, the Lyme is not a threat, and my body is beginning to heal, but there's still a lot to be done. And the struggle continues, and the constant ups and downs proceed. But each day, I feel my body getting stronger, but this is by far not the best part. The healing of my heart has taken off. One of my most difficult casualties has been the broken relationship I've had with my sister Ashley. Sometime after I became sick, our relationship became more tense. She was angry at at my disease for holding all the focus and frustrated that the older sister she had known was different. So to deal with it, she avoided me and when she was around me, she spoke in anger or ignored me. But this past summer, she came home from Lebanon for the summer. Even though she never wanted to be around me, I longed to have her see me and to love me. She was my sister, and I needed her now more than ever. I confronted her and begged her to love me and asked her what I had done to have her avoid me. She told me she would pray about it and pray that God would help change her heart towards me. Then over the next week, I saw her change. It was mind-boggling. She looked and talked to me differently. She was patient, and she was kind, and she actually made eye contact with me. Our relationship now continues to light my life, and we continue to grow and enjoy each other on a deeper level. And it was there that I thought if God could change her heart and restore that broken place, then he could change mine. I was tired of doing this alone, and I was tired of being sad and angry. I missed him, and so I prayed differently for the first time, not for physical healing, but for the restoration of my heart and the strength to stand under this trial. And slowly I began to feel something change. Joy was starting to well up in my heart, and the hardness began to soften. I began to read scripture again and realized how far I had been from the truth. I was loved, and I was his then, now, and always. I have searched and I have found, and he has never failed. Your family, doctors, friends, and body can fail you, but God can't. So why did I tell you all this? I told you this because I wanted to show you how God can work through anything to bring himself glory and how it's important to hold on to truth. God's word is his truth. People often told me, you're too young to be sick, and to that I would reply, sickness is ageless, and this happened to me in God's perfect time. I see now that God is crying with me and that he's allowed these things to come into my life for a special purpose, custom fit to me. Yours may not be a long chronic illness, but as one of his, you will face trials, and all I can say is to embrace them. I know this is hard, and I know so often we want to take pain away, but if it is for his glory, it is our joy. It's funny how you can love someone as much as you think you can, and then life happens, and that love becomes something more than you ever imagined. I'm still learning what it really means, what love really means and how the Lord has showered me with it. I have been loved so deeply that I cannot really seem to grasp it. My mind seems to have to shift or move when caught in thinking that is too large for contemplation. The past seven years have been intense, for a lack of a better word. My heart still hurts when looking back at those years, But the hurt now is temporary, and sometimes more often now serves as a stepping block and a chance to remember all the blessings the Lord has given me out of the pain. Everyone will have personal and individualized hurt during his or her life. But those hurts are gifts. Does this sound twisted to you? Maybe like I'm trying to make pretty of an ugly situation to better help myself deal with devastation? It's here my concern leaves you. Think what you will. My heart is confident, my mind never sure... I am seeing it for what it is in my life, a gift and a reflection of God's grace. I have the Holy Spirit of the living God dwelling in my heart, and I have only been able to really see him through such deserts. Life, uncomfortable can leave us without a need for being saved. I have seen some dark places, and to navigate alone is empty. I have seen myself dismantled in ways I never thought possible. Sometimes I wonder how we can appreciate light unless we have seen darkness, and it is here I feel so blessed and privileged." If asked if I would go into such a fire in hopes of glorifying the Lord or being refined, I would have honestly most likely avoided it, said no, or replied there must be a less painful way. But the fire came and it burned and I couldn't move. I long to know more about this God who loves me, who has written the greatest love letter to me, who speaks and guides me through his words, has never left me and has never failed me. I am more aware now that I am still far from that which he has called me to be and that he will stop at nothing to pursue and transform me. I am truly loved. I am excited about the rest of my life, soak or healthy, to continue to learn what it means to abandon myself and rush the throne of the Almighty God, Heather. So thank you for letting me share that. Thank you. Mm.
0: God heals and our God restores. Let me pull the house lights up now. I'd like you to open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 2. <clears throat> I want you to follow for a moment this story. It begins with Joshua. The scriptures declare that in Joshua chapter 1 that Moses, the servant of God, is dead. And Joshua, you're the leader. You're called to take the people across the Jordan River into the promised land. The Jordan River itself was at flood stage. To cross over the Jordan into the land of Canaan meant a declaration of war, that the very bravest of the seven nations would come against Israel. But God called them to take the land and take possession of the land. You see, when they came into the land, before they came in, Joshua sent two spies to check out the land. It's always better to uh, look before you leap. It's always better to know something about the enemy before you fight the battle. So they sent these two spies in, and they went to the house of Rahab, the prostitute. Now, apparently, what happened was they came to the city gate, into the city, and they saw this movement inside Rahab's house. It could have been an inn for travelers, men coming to the city would stay there. So the two men went into Rahab's house. Now, I've often thought what it would be like for the spies to have a cell phone conversation with Joshua. Joshua, how's it going? It's going great. Where are you guys staying? We're staying at the house of Rahab, the prostitute. So at that very moment, the king becomes aware that the spies were staying in the house of Rahab. So they sent word by way of guards to knock on the door. And Rahab opens the door. They know not the barge because you never know what could be happening inside of Rahab's house. The, the king gives an order to bring those men out. Now, for those men to be brought out would mean certain death. So at this very moment in time, the spy expedition lies in the hands of Rahab the harlot. Rahab says the men came, but they've also left. And so she basically sends the spies away. Now, we pick up at at verse 9, and this is what Rahab said. Before the spies lay down for the night... She, Rahab, went up on the roof and said to them, I know the Lord has given you this land, and a great fear of you has fallen on all of us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea. For when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sion and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed, when we heard of it, Our hearts melted, and everyone's courage failed because of you. Now listen to this. This is her testimony. For the Lord, your God, is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab makes an astonishing confession. She says, I know the Lord has given this land to you, the land that was promised to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob. She's using the name Yahweh, the highest name, the name above all other names. She is saying, I believe your God is as big as you say he is. I believe your God is greater than my ancestral gods. I believe that in spite of what I've been taught, that your God is for real. I believe that your God exists. Somewhere, Rahab, who lived in this Canaanite city, who was a Canaanite, who had never been to a synagogue, who had never heard about the God of Israel. She's heard the testimony about the Red Sea they marched over and the Egyptian army being swallowed up. She's heard the testimony about the nations that have been destroyed on the way. And Rahab believed. You say, what is the point? What is the point of the story? The point of the story is that our God delivers Our God delivers people like Rahab from cities like Jericho. They had put their trust in the walls around Jericho. They had put their trust in the false gods like Baal and Asherah. But she had learned about the God of Israel, and she put her trust in him, and our God delivered her. Rahab, the prostitute, was saved. She struck a deal, letting the men down by rope, leaving the city. And then they said to her, Put outside your house the scarlet cord, that your house can be identified. And take your mother, your father, your brothers, all the members of your household, and put them inside your house, so that when the city is destroyed, your house will be spared. And then we learn in chapter 6 of the book of Joshua, as the young man had done the spying, went out and brought out Rahab. You see, just before the battle of Jericho, Joshua, the leader, had a visit from the pre-incarnate Christ, the angel of the Lord. And he saw a man with a sword that was drawn. And he said, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he said, I've come to you as the commander of the Lord's army. And Joshua bowed before him in reverence. And the angel said, take off your sandals for the place where you're standing is holy ground. And then the angel of the Lord gave this battle plan to Joshua. He said, the city of Jericho will be conquered by this. You will march around the city for six days, once every day. You'll put your armed guard in front, and behind them you'll take seven priests with seven trumpets. And behind the trumpets will come the ark of the Lord, and the people will march. And behind the people will come the rear guard. March around the city for six days, once every day. But on the seventh day, march around the city for seven times, and then blow those trumpets and shout. And when they blew the trumpets and they shouted on the seventh day, the walls of Jericho began to fall, except the very place where Rahab the harlot lived. You see, she had brought her family into that house, and she extended from her house. The scarlet cord. You see, our God deals with us on the basis of grace and mercy and forgiveness. Our God saves, our God delivers, and God delivered Rahab from sure destruction. And the scriptures declare that by faith, the walls of Jericho fell. The walls of Jericho did not fall because of a battering ram the Israelites employed. The walls of Jericho did not fall because of some kind of launch into the walls of that city. They did not dig underneath the walls of the city. They did not put a ladder against the walls of Jericho. The walls of Jericho fell because the people marched around them for seven days. And by faith, Hebrews tells us, the prostitute Rahab, because she welcomed the spies, was not killed with those who were disobedient. Rahab was spared, and any member of her city that had turned to the Lord would have also been spared. Now we turn to the book of Judges. The key verse in the book of Judges is Judges chapter 21 and verse 25. It appears as if while the people had Joshua, they followed the Lord. But when Joshua died, there arose a generation that did not know the Lord, did not know of his ways. Look at Joshua chapter 21, or Judges 21, verse 25. In that day, in those days, Israel had no king, and all the people did whatever seemed right to them in their own eyes. In that day, the nation was leaderless. The nation was rudderless. The nation had no vision. And every person there did what was right in their, own, in their own eyes. Could it be that the very same thing that was happening in Judges is happening now in America? That everyone seems to be doing what is right in their own eyes. Our eyes have turned away from the Lord. It is as, it is as if God has not spoken, it is, as, it is as if we are making up our own rules. It is as if, as if we are living by our own laws. We have, a, we have a culture that has embraced the value, that I am entitled to do whatever I want, whenever I want. God has said, abstain from sexual immorality. But society says you are free to live together before marriage. And God has said, do not get drunk on wine. But society says, make sure you have yourself a designated driver. God has said, do not be yoked together with an unbeliever. But we say, if I date this person and love them enough, they will come into the kingdom. They'll become a Christian once we're married. God has said, discipline your children. If you love your children, you will bring discipline to them. We say, we'll bring them positive reinforcement only and never bring correction. God has said, if a man will not work, Neither shall he eat. But we say we're entitled to food, to health care. We're entitled to parents to take care of us until we're 30. We're entitled to a job that doesn't demand much of you and pays you a lot of money. And God has said, turn the other cheek. God has said much. And we say, nobody will ever walk upon me. We're living in a time when everybody seems to be doing what's right in their own eyes. We're not listening to the voice of God. We're not heeding the voice of God. Solomon said, my son, pay attention to what I say. Give heed to my words. Write them upon your heart. Guards your heart, for out of your heart is the wellspring of your life. But our hearts have been taken away. We followed another voice. We've taken the Ten Commandments out of our courtrooms. A reminder of what God had said was true. We've taken down we've questioned taking down the cross in a place like New Mexico or the cross over the graves of those buried in Arlington. We even now have legislation passed, national health care, where votes from senators from North Carolina or from Louisiana and Nebraska were purchased by promising those states millions of dollars. When was it that we could buy votes? by giving millions of dollars away to senators. What is happening to this nation? We are doing what is right in our own eyes. Everybody seems to be doing what's right in their own eyes. And they're not listening to the voice of God. God has the power to deliver us. But we must turn our attention back to Him. We must return to the Lord, our God. The gods of this land are false gods, but our God is worthy to be feared. That's why judges it, before, messing this up that's why Joshua gave this warning to the nation of Israel just before he passed away. Judge, Joshua chapter 24, verse 14. This is what Joshua said. "Now fear the Lord, and serve him with all faithfulness. Your God has been faithful to you. God has kept His promises. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites, the gods of this land, in whose land you are living. But as for me, and my house, we will serve the Lord." He is making a declaration. He is driving a stake into the ground that as for me and my house, we are going to serve the Lord. We're going to serve the Lord in the good times and in the bad. We're going to serve the Lord in the prosperity and in the adversity. We're going to serve the Lord when it is easy and when it is hard. We're going to serve the Lord in the good times and in the bad. We're going to serve the Lord when it's convenient and when it's inconvenient. We're going to serve the Lord in our house and outside of our house because we will be known as the servants of the Lord. God is raising up a generation to serve him, to serve him. There rose a generation that did not know the Lord and they suffered, and wherever there is sin, there is suffering. But listen to this promise about those who fear the Lord, Psalm 112. Blessed is the man, blessed is a woman who fears the Lord, who finds great delight in His commands. His children and their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in His house, and His righteousness Endures forever. Even in darkness, even in the darkness of times, the light dawns for the upright, for the gracious, compassionate, and righteous man. God God will take care of that man who conducts himself with justice. He will have no fear of bad news, for his heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. You see, Christianity is a decision. It's the decision of of whom I'm going to serve, whether I'm going to serve the gods of this land or whether I'm going to serve the living and true God. Joshua made a decision, and the same decision you need to make, as to who you are going to serve. So we find this pattern in the book of Judges. There's eight points of this. I think they're on the screen behind me. You'll find in the book of Judges this very pattern of sinning and suffering, of supplication and salvation. The first of these is, and there's 12 judges in the book of Judges. And these judges not only settled disputes, but they also brought deliverance to the land. The first point is that Israel chooses to do evil in the eyes of the Lord. They could have chose to do good, but they chose to do evil. They could have listened to the the voice of the Lord, but they listen to other voices. Secondly, God, Yahweh, sells or gives them into the hands of oppressors. And some of these oppressors oppressed them for eight years and 40 years. The oppression was sometimes very severe. Sometimes the, the oppression was so severe that hid themselves like Gideon. Third, Israel um, severs the oppressor of uh, Israel Israel serves the oppressor for an X amount of years. So what happens is the people begin to serve their oppressor. Fourth, Israel will cry out to the Lord. God will deliver those who cry out unto Him. If your family is in debt and you cry out to the Lord, deliver us from debt, I believe that God has the power to deliver you. If your relationships are broken, like in the case of Heather, And you cry out to the Lord, the Lord has the power to restore broken relationships. Fifth, God raises up a judge, a deliverer. Sixth, the Spirit of the living God is upon that judge. Seventh, the oppressor is subdued, and then the land enters into rest for X amount of years. Look at this verse Judges chapter 2 and verse 16. And the Lord Himself raised up judges. And whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, He was with the judge and saved them out of the hands of the enemies as long as the judge lived. For the Lord had compassion on them as they groaned under those who oppressed them and afflicted them. Our God has the power to deliver us. You see, the very same God who delivered Noah from the flood it's the same God who delivered Abraham from idol- idolatry. It's the God who delivered David from the paw of the lion, the paw of the bear from the hand of the Philistine. It's the very same God who delivered Elijah from Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. It's the very same God who delivered Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from that blazing fire. It's the very same God who delivered Daniel from the lion's den. It's the very same God who delivered Rahab the prostitute out of Canaan, it's the very same God who's delivering me from financial bondage. It's the very same God who's delivering Heather from a broken heart. Our God has the power to deliver. So you say, Pastor, what do you believe is the idolatry in America? An idol is anything that displaces God's place. An idol is anything that occupies most of our thinking. An idol is something that holds on to my affection. I believe that the idolatry, obviously in America, is that of money. We believe the more money we have, the happier we will be. And we believe the more money we have, the more important we will be. And we believe the more money we have, the more secure we will be. The studies are coming forth now to show that having more does not create more happiness. We've sent a team off to Thailand, and I promise you the report they'll bring back will be something like this. We went to Thailand to minister in the name of the Lord, and the people there have absolutely nothing. We went into their homes, we saw they have nothing. But the people there have such incredible joy. Underlying that assumption is the American assumption that having more makes me more happy you see we have equated our net worth with our self worth a person is important if they have more money we buy stuff we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't even like having more things will not make you more secure the tr- the truth is the more you have the more you stand to lose And the more you have, the more it takes to maintain it. And the more you have, the more it takes to insure it. (laughs) The truth is, security can only be found by putting your trust in someone, something that can't be taken from you. You put your security in things, and the things can be taken away from you. You see, whatever you trust for your security is your God. People in the time of Judges, replacing their security in stone carvings, clay statues, to secure them against the unpredictability of life. They put their trust in Baal and Asherah to lessen the odds the rug would not be pulled out from them. Now in America, we have trusted our money, our employer, our jobs, our portfolio, our investments, and they provide for us our security. God is calling us to trust him. Command the rich in this world to not put their trust in riches, which is so uncertain, but to put their trust in God. For in God we will find the strength and the provision and the hope. God is calling us to serve him. Would you pray with me? Father, as we begin this book of Judges, as we begin to open up this great book where there is such intense darkness and people seem to turn away, we see that many in our own nation have turned away from you, Lord, listening to other voices, making false assumptions, having false beliefs, perhaps believing the more we have, the happier we will be, or the more we have, the more important we will be, or the more we have, the more secure we will be. God, we repent of our sin. And we ask you, Lord, to fill our hearts with truth, that our salvation may be put, our hope may be put in the person of Jesus Christ, that we might follow him with a whole heart, and that God, you would progressively deliver us from the things that have held us captive and in bondage. Father, would you set your people free. As we open up this book, Lord, speak to us. It seemed then that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. Father, we want to do what is right in your eyes. And so on this day, we say, Lord, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. God, may you bless that decision. And may you pour out your blessings upon these households. In the midst of our hopelessness, Lord, give us a hope that cannot be taken away from us. In the midst of our insecurities, give us a security that will hold us fast. Give us an anchor that will hold through the storms of life. Help our lives be anchored in you, Lord, and the promises you give. For you are a great provider, and you give us strength through the hard times. So give us that strength, Lord, we ask for in the name of Jesus.